This morning we're in John chapter 15. In the previous chapter, in chapter 14, we basically went through that in the last couple of weeks, and Jesus says, there's hope for you. There's hope in heaven. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And this chapter, it's more about our relationship to him and with him. And the last verse in chapter 14, just to set the scene, is Jesus telling the disciples, Arise, let us go from here. So it appears that chapter 15 was spoken as they were walking, making their way through the city of Jerusalem and heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane via the Kidron Valley. So it's Passover time. So Passover means full moon. And the temple back then would have had the vines on the front doors of the temple. And the full moon was probably, I'm guessing, lighting up those vines. So when you walked at night, you could probably see the the moonlight reflecting off those carvings on the, the doors of the temple. And the disciples were probably looking at that. And Jesus uses that as a teaching moment to talk about him being the true vine. So we'll pray, then we'll read the chapter. Father, thank you for this beautiful chapter, talking about our relationship with you. And Lord, we just pray that you help us to learn to abide and really just appreciate the privilege it is to abide with you and to be called your friend, to be brought into not just companionship, but Lord, trust. Lord, where you communicate to us what you're doing. And so we just yeah thank you that we are working with you and not just friends with you, but working with you and you use us to accomplish your purposes on this earth. And thank you for that privilege too. So I just pray you help us to understand as we go through and to apply what we learn to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So there's a lot in this. It's a beautiful chapter. Talking about our relationship with God and abiding in him. So verse 1. I am the true vine. So this is the eighth ego in me, or I am statement, and it is, I am the true vine. Now, why would he say I am the true vine? Because there's other imitations. We can hook into other things which will not satisfy, which will not fulfill. Think about it. The disciples are going to be kicked out of the temple. Israel, Judaism, is considered or is pictured as a vine. They're going to be kicked out of that system. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. So instead of being attached and participating in the Jewish religion, now they're attached and they find their identity in Jesus. And my father is the vine dresser. So in the Old Testament, the vine, as I said, is used as a picture of Israel. And God the Father was also presented as the one who cultivated and managed the vine. And this picture continues 
in the New Testament under the New Covenant. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So the word translated take away or takes away in verse 2 is aero, A-I-R-O. And it has four different definitions. Three of them deal with lifting up or raising up or pulling up. Okay, so lifting something up. The fourth definition is take away. So an example of where it's used in the book of John is in John chapter 11, verse 41, where Jesus lifts up his eyes toward the heavens. So he doesn't, he doesn't take away his eyes from the heavens, he lifts up. And again in Luke 17, where the people lifted their voices. So I believe here that it should be translated lift up. Okay, So I'll say that again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And we'll get into that more in a bit. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. And now the word prunes, or in your um, King James purge, um, is the word catharo, which we get our word catharis, referring to a cleansing process. So catharo is used in John 13 when Jesus cleansed or cleaned the feet of his disciples. And in almost every New Testament usage, catharo is not translated purge, but cleanse, or not translated prunes, but cleans. Okay, So it's not uncommon for branches in vineyards to get really heavy when they've got lots of fruit on them. And when they get heavy, they bow down. They go low to the ground. And then they get dirt on them. Does that make sense? All right, so you've got this branch, and it gets on the uh, our mulberry tree does this too. It gets really heavy, and all the branches touch the ground. And so the vine dresser, seeing a branch in the mud, lifts it up and braces it. And if there is fruit on the branch, then he washes the mud off the fruit very carefully, tenderly. And so I believe this is not a picture of Jesus lopping us off. <laughs> oh, we're not bearing fruit. <laughs> okay. But rather him lifting us up and cleansing us, just like a vine dresser would lift up the heavy branch full of fruit and then clean the dirty fruit so it doesn't get diseased. In verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So we can follow the analogy. Jesus is saying, I lift up the downtrodden branch, I wash the contaminated fruit. But how does he do it? Well, it's through the word. Verse 3 says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You're clean because of or through the word. How do you bear more fruit? By being in the word. How do we get our lives cleaned up? How does more fruit come? Well, fruit comes by a commitment to the word, the Bible, an acceptance of the truth of the word and by staying in the word. Psalm 119, you know this verse. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. And Paul picks up the same thought in Ephesians 5 where he talks about husbands and wives and he says that the bride is washed by the water of the word. Okay. 
So Jesus is giving us an important exhortation when he says, I am the true vine, you're the branches. When you're downcast and dirty, the Father will come and pick you up and wash you off via the word as you have your morning devotions, as you come to church, in your Bible study, home groups, whatever it might be, prayer groups. So it's really important to be in a place where the word is taught, where beliefs are based on what Jesus said, because it has a cleansing effect on our lives. So the word of God is a cleansing agent. It condemns sin, it inspires holiness, it promotes growth, and it reveals power for victory. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So fruit bearing is impossible without abiding, but it's inevitable with abiding. It's not something you have to try and do. So the quality and the quantity of the fruit may differ, but the presence of fruit in the true Christian's life is inevitable. Okay, Remember in the parable of the soils, the good soil, everyone bore fruit, but there was different amounts of fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So Jesus is saying, stay close to me, abide in me, cling to me, because if you don't, there won't be any fruit coming from your life. Now, what is fruit? How do we define fruit? Well, Romans one thirteen and John 4 identify fruit as soul winning, winning lost souls, so like evangelism. Uh, Romans 6.22 defines fruit as holiness. Romans 15.28 names financial giving as a fruit. Colossians 1 describes fruit as helping practically, practical help. Hebrews 13 tells us that the fruit of our lips is giving praise to his name, so praise. And ultimately, and probably most importantly, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Remember, it's the fruit of the Spirit, fruit singular, and what is love? Well, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. So when your life is filled with love, when you're giving financially, when you're praising the Lord verbally, when you're doing good things practically, when you're witnessing to the lost boldly, when you're joyful, peaceful, and patient, that's fruit. That's what the Christian life should look like. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, fruit affects us now because if we're not bearing fruit now, if we're not patient and gentle and kind, then it's going to affect our relationships with people. Now, things are going to be much more difficult than they could be otherwise. But it also affects us eternally because we get rewarded for the things that God does through us. It doesn't really make sense why God reward us for something he's done, but he does. So if we abide in him, he will work through us and we get rewarded for that. And verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So there's much fruit. God wants us all to have very fruitful lives. That's his will for us. Now, imagine, you know, most of us have got fruit trees somewhere. Imagine you've got an apple tree in your backyard and I say, all right, everyone bring in a branch and we'll put them all together and we'll have a fruit tree at church. Next year, 
we'll get apples off those branches. And you're looking at me going, you're a bit weird. The branch has to be linked to the trunk. Otherwise, there's no way fruit will be produced on that limb. Okay, so when we remove the branch from the trunk, it'll die, it'll wither, okay? If we're cut off from the Lord, if we're distanced from the Lord, we're not going to bear fruit. So what's the answer to this? We need to be in his presence, how often? Daily, okay? In his word continually. And uh, what does Paul say about prayer? When? How often do we pray? Continually. So if not, we'll be cut off from the flow of sap that would have produced the fruit for his pleasure and rewards in eternity. Now, if there is a lack of fruit in our lives, you know, sometimes even in myself, wow, even in myself, (laughs) yes, um, there is sometimes a lack of fruit. My wife can attest to that. You know, sometimes I'm not patient or whatever. You know what? It's true. It's an irrefutable fact of spiritual life that every man, every woman is as close to the Lord as he or she chooses to be. I think it was John Stott who said that. If you choose to abide in him, to intertwine your life with his, to wrap yourself around him and stay close to him, you will inevitably bring forth a lot of fruit. But if you don't, then you won't. So, how is fruit produced? Well, it's very simple. It's by abiding. It's not struggling and it's not striving. It's an orchard and not a factory. But a lot of people get caught up with this. All right. An example. Wanting to overcome sin. Okay? One of the fruits of the Spirit is holiness, as we just spoke about. So, all right, I know that God's will for me is to be holy. So I'm going to try my very best to change my behavior so I can be holy, like God wants me to be. And so I try and try and try. And for a little while, I can overcome that particular thing. But guess what? I haven't changed on the inside. This is a work that I'm doing. It's a strain. It's a struggle. It's something I'm really having to work hard at. And eventually, the old nature comes back, overwhelms me, and I repeat those old sins. Okay? You know, you lose your temper again. You say, I'm going to... That that problem relationship with that child or that problem relationship with that friend or, or whatever, or that student, I'm going to really try hard not to lose my temper with that person. And so you do. You try really hard. But that's not abiding that's struggling that's striving okay so remember our life is an orchard not a factory we shouldn't be working we just need to be abiding all right because if we're not and it's all our own effort then it's temporary change the old will come back the reality of our heart will be manifest or revealed eventually so the only way you can really bear fruit which is you know love joy peace patience etc and have boldness in witnessing and sing a praise from your heart and give generously is to abide in Christ. And so what does the fruit tree or the, the branch and the fruit tree do? It just sits there on the tree day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. And in due season, the blossoms come and then the apples appear. Okay? So fruit takes time. It's really important you remember that fruit takes time. Just hang in there. You're saying, well, I've been reading my Bible every day for two weeks now. Well, that's 
that's only two weeks. You've got a lifetime. You know, fruit takes time. The longer you hang in there, the more fruit will come. And some fruit takes years to come. For without me, you can do nothing. So basically, if we're not abiding in Christ, then whatever we're doing in our life is an eternal waste. Our life is a waste. If it's not abiding in Christ, it means nothing. Zip, zilch, zero. It's worth nothing. It will not count. It will not be there in eternity. Some people say, oh, but I work for the, the Rotary. I volunteer my time for the Rotary Club or I volunteer for the Red Cross. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're not abiding in Christ, if it's not being done for the glory of Christ, if you're not being led by Christ, it's for nothing. You're wasting your time. So why do people donate time to the Red Cross, etc.? Why do they join service organizations? Why do they do all these good deeds? Well, there's lots of reasons. Perhaps to appease a guilty conscience. Perhaps to get business deals. I know of people who joined a church so they could sell insurance, you know, to make friends and sell insurance and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's for camaraderie. There's lots of reasons which have nothing to do with absolute goodness. They have nothing to do with abiding in Christ. So only what we do in Christ and for Christ and because of Christ will count for eternity. And Jesus is saying, if I'm not in the center of it, it's worth nothing. So let's not waste our lives. Let's have fruitful lives. Um, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now this is a verse that causes much consternation with people. So what is Jesus saying here? And I'm going to give you the three views that people have on this verse. Okay, The first view believes cast out branches are ones who, though once true believers, end up in hell for a lack of fruit. They were once saved, but now are cast out. Okay. The second view is that the cast out branches are pseudo-Christians who never really abided in Christ and therefore go to hell. People like Judas, you know, false converts. The third view sees the branches cast out as fruitless Christians who live wasted or burnt up lives. And an example they use is Lot. His life didn't amount to much because he, you know, he lived in Sodom and he um, joined himself to the world. Even though he was a righteous man, but his soul was tormented because he was living as a worldly person. So, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So there's an easy way to avoid being one of the cast out branches. They are the ones who do not abide in me, Jesus said. Okay. So if we abide in Jesus, we can have full confidence and assurance. And here's a quote from Chuck Smith about eternal security, about this verse. It says, Many people endlessly debate about the issue of eternal security. Can you lose your salvation once you are a child of God? This passage is one of the passages that seems to indicate the possibility that you can lose your salvation. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. But this passage doesn't make me insecure at all. I intend to always abide in him. Why would I ever want to cease abiding in him? 
If I abide in him, I live a life of fruitfulness. If I abide in him, he answers my prayers. If I abide in him, I abide in his love. If I abide in him, my joy is full. I am eternally secure as long as I abide in him, and I am going to do just that. (laughs) I will leave the arguments to the theologians. I am abiding in him. So if we're abiding in him, we are 100% secure, and it doesn't matter what opinion you might have on that verse. And I want to come back to this. Real fruitfulness is only determined over an extended period of time. So genuine conversion is not measured by the hasty decision, but by long-range fruitfulness. And you see this in the parable of the soils, because the rocky ground hearer and the weedy hearer, where all the weeds um, choke the, the plant, they spring up quickly, but then they die out Okay, when the trials come. And so only the good soil where there is true understanding yields real fruit. And that's the true convert. All right, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So the word abide, what does it mean? We've been using this word a bit now. It means to be at home in. You want to be at home with the word of God. You want the words to be a part of you. So... Psalm 119.11, your word I have hidden in my heart. Not in his head, but in his heart. Now Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Okay, Not your head, but our hearts. You know, our head or our mind, if you want to think of it like that, it can change. I might have an idea and then something will I'll get some more information in and I'll think, actually, no, it's not a good idea. We'll do something different. And then some more information comes in. Actually, I think we'll do that. And then more information comes in. No, I'll change the mind again. And so the mind changes really quickly. Okay. And so it's not something that's going to last. You make up your mind to believe something, but it can be changed quickly when new information comes in. But here's an example of how the heart doesn't change so quickly. You've all been young at one stage. All right. If you have a girlfriend and or a boyfriend and you break up, in your head, you know that you're better off without them. But in your heart, you want to be back with them. Your heart is attached to that person. Yeah. So the heart doesn't let go that easily. And that's why the Lord wants his word to dwell there. So the most practical way that knowledge moves from the head to the heart is through prayerful meditation and contemplation. So the word can sink in and permeate my inner man. It must be written in my heart. It takes time. It's not just enough to, you know, do your McDonald's, you know, your, your fast food thing in the morning. You've got to take time. You've got to let it sink in and prayerfully read. So you're asking the Lord, what are you showing me here? How do you want me to change? The second part of verse 7, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If you're clinging to me, if your life is intertwined with me, you can ask whatever you want and your prayers will be answered without exception. The only qualification is if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, what's the problem with a lot of our prayers? 
Well, James 4, 2 and 3 says, You have not because you ask not, but when you ask, you receive not because you ask amiss. In other words, our requests are out of line. When we're not in the Word, we don't know how to pray properly. Prayer and the Word go hand in hand. As I'm in the Word, His words abide in me, and it is then that I know how to pray and what to ask for. Um, a quote from Guzik, Answered prayer is a privilege of close abiding. We find our prayers in tune with Jesus' will. So the closer we abide with the Lord, the more time we spend in the Word and prayer and that quiet time with Him, then the closer our hearts will be and our prayers will be more and more in tune with His will. So, a bit of a um, stupid story here. All right. So, I'm praying, right? And I said, Oh, Father, we need money for missions, so would you please grant success in next week's bank robbery? Is the Lord going to answer that prayer? No. Why not? Because it's completely out of line with what his word says I should be doing. Now, obviously that's stupid, right? And we can laugh at it. But I want you to think about your prayers from when you were a young Christian up till now. And if you could replay them and think about what motivated them and what you were praying for and why you were praying and that, I can think of some things I used to pray for. I'm kind of looking back now and thinking, well, how foolish was that? No wonder that prayer wasn't answered because it was for the wrong reason. It wasn't God's heart. I wasn't lined up with God's heart. So verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So where does joy come from? Abiding in love, in the love of God. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's where our joy comes from. This is all about relationship. Relationship, relationship, relationship. That's it. So bearing fruit, abiding, is abiding in his love. Okay. So we use the word to point us to Jesus so we can experience a deeper relationship with him and we experience more love. Okay. Now, does Jesus promise happiness? No. But what he does promise is a constant sense of joy in your heart regardless of your circumstances. So when things happen to you, you are going to feel emotions of discouragement, of being let down, of being betrayed, and frustration. But underneath all that, somehow, miraculously, there is still joy. And Jesus says that this joy will be in proportion to how much we abide in his word. Another quote, The joy of Jesus is not the pleasure of a life of ease. It is the exhilaration of being right with God and consciously walking in his love and care. We can have that joy and have it as an abiding presence. So I read that. I think it's really well put. It's from Guzik. The joy of Jesus is not the pleasure of a life at ease. 
It is the exhilaration of being right with God and consciously walking in His love and care. We can have that joy and have it as an abiding presence. Isn't that a fantastic definition of what this joy is? It's hard to explain. It's not happiness. Exhilaration of being right with God. It doesn't matter what's going on, what emotions you're feeling. It's this deep down, undergirding security that we have of abiding in his love. That your joy may be full is the next phrase there. And this is the result of abiding in Jesus' love. And obedience flowing from the abiding relationship. So, Jesus experienced and was even at this time experiencing fullness of joy because of his perfect love relationship with the Father. And here's a a quote from Chuck Smith regarding the joy. Jesus is talking about joy, but what's he about to do? He's about to die. Okay, so this is an example. Jesus never says something without actually giving an example. In this case, he himself is the example. So we look at the joy that Jesus has. So Chuck Smith says, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. But he was about to face the cross and he knew it. He knew the ugly experience he would go through the next day. He would be mocked, jeered, buffeted, scourged, insulted and humiliated. With all that he was about to go through, we might rightfully ask, Your joy? What joy? But Hebrews 12.2 tells us that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. His joy was the redemption of man. His joy is the ability to say to you, your sins are forgiven. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And if we abide in him, we gain the eternal perspective and receive the joy that comes from seeing the future. We talked about that last week. The hope of heaven. Okay. So if you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love. So we know that we abide in God's love by obedience and not by our emotional experiences, okay? And uh, I was just thinking yesterday, I had a, a bit of an emotional experience. I was singing a worship song and I got a bit teary and and uh, I was just at home by myself and it was really nice and then um, the kids got home and I was selfish and I'm thinking how does that work you know love isn't a feeling love is something that we do okay it doesn't matter how you feel it's it's what you do so true love is, is shown by what we do it's not by how we feel So, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So, when we fail to abide in Jesus' love, and therefore we fail to keep his commandments, then we don't have the fullness of joy he promises to those who do abide in his love and obedience. And there's a quote here from Carson. I've heard this before and I'm glad I found it again. It's a really good one. No one is more miserable than the Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures and does not love Christ enough to relish holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is iniquitous, but obedience seems distasteful. He does not feel at home any longer in the world, but his memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied, 
and he cannot forever remain ambivalent. So did you get that? If you are one foot in one camp and one foot in the other, then you will not experience happiness or joy or the benefits of either camp. All right. So obedience begins with abiding in the love of Jesus. And I believe that the main reason that most of us choose not to obey is because we're not persuaded of the love of God for us. So if we don't truly believe that God really cares for us and he has all these wonderful thoughts for us, then we won't want to draw near to him. Okay, And if you look at Deuteronomy one twenty seven, this is the main reason why Israel never got into the promised land, that first generation. It says in the Psalms there as well that God revealed his ways to Moses, but his acts to the children of Israel. So they saw what he did, but didn't understand his heart. So if you keep my commandments, the foremost commandment to obey is to love one another. It's also found in John 13.34. And Christians are always talking about heaven and, oh, there's beautiful relationships in heaven. And down here on earth, we still you know, hold grudges and we still hold back on loving people. And there's an old poem that kind of helps us to understand what I'm trying to say here. To live above with those you love, undiluted glory. To live below with those you know, quite another story. <laughs> so we want to make the reality in heaven the reality on earth. And we can as we abide in Christ. Okay. So, speaking of abiding in my word, Jesus says, My word to you is that as I have loved you, so I want you to love one another. So, it doesn't matter how much theology you know or how much wisdom you claim to have. If you don't love me, Jesus talking, and the person sitting beside you, then nothing else matters. Love is the biggest evidence of your Christian walk. And it's commandment, which means love is not a matter of Emotion, but of volition. It's a choice. Jesus doesn't ever command us to feel something. He commands us to do something. Help the world to see that I am alive, the Lord says. The only way that people are going to know that Jesus is real is by our love. Now, it's difficult thinking of love as just something you do and not something you feel. What happens most of the time is when you do something, the emotion will follow. Okay? So, for example, there might be a husband who's lost feeling for his wife. He's not feeling like he loves her anymore. Well, what's the solution? If he treats her like a treasure and he treasures her and and puts all his heart and soul into this marriage, then what's going to happen? The emotions will follow. Okay, He makes the choice to love her by serving her sacrificially, and the emotions of love will follow. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So if you choose to invest in your marriage, for example, then your heart will follow. Okay, it's like when you give your money to something, you put your time into something, whatever it might be, your heart will be attached to that thing. 
And unfortunately, our culture has lost the meaning of what real love is. Consequently, husbands and wives are saying, I don't have feelings for him or her anymore, so I'm leaving. I don't love them anymore, that's what they say. You've heard that before? We don't love each other anymore, we're getting a divorce. But feelings are not the issue. Love is not an emotion or a feeling. It's a decision. It's an action. My commandment, Jesus said, is that you make the decision to love. All right. So, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, an entire nation was revived when John Knox prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. But what many people don't know is what Knox wrote concerning the answer to that prayer. The Lord responded in his heart, saying, First die, then I'll give you Scotland. <laughs> we can say, make this relationship work or I'm going to die. Someone prayed that in the Old Testament, didn't they? Give me children or I'm going to die. Well, the Lord says to us, die first. Okay, Lay down your life for your wife, your neighbor, your friend. That is not only the proof of your love, but the pathway to love. Because love is not some feeling you hope is going to come back, not some kind of elusive mystical emotion. It's the decision to die to self, to die to your dreams, your desires, your needs, and your wants, and instead lay down your life for your friend, your husband, your neighbor, or your kids. And there's a story I've got to illustrate loving sacrificially here to lay your life down for one's friends. And it's called Revolting Natives, and it's from the Evidence Bible. An African chief got wind of a mutiny being planned in his tribe. In an effort to quash the revolt, he called the tribe together and said that anyone caught in rebellion would be given 100 lashes without mercy. A short time later, to the chief's dismay, he found that his own brother was behind the revolt. He was trying to overthrow him so he could be the head of the tribe. Everyone thought the chief would break his word, but being a just man, he had his brother tied to a tree. Then he had himself tied next to him, and he took those 100 lashes across his own bare flesh in his brother's place. In doing so, he not only kept his word, justice was done, but he also demonstrated his great love and forgiveness toward his brother. So there's a practical example of what it means to lay down your life for your friends. Verse 14, 15, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, what's the difference between a servant and a friend? Well, it's not being obedient or disobedient because a servant is obedient, right? The difference is understanding versus not understanding because friends have a close relationship. They understand each other. They talk to each other. But a master and a servant, the boss just tells the servant what to do. So Jesus considers me his friend. And for me, that's amazing. I'm flaky, fickle and foolish. I'm always messing up and getting bad attitudes and always having to repent 
And he looks at me and calls me his friend. So this means he doesn't love us because he has to, but because he chooses to. He likes us. That's another way of putting that. You know God likes you. You know, so we say to our kids sometimes, I love you, but right now I don't like you. You know, when they're being difficult. Jesus just doesn't love us, but he likes us. He gets a kick out of being around us. We are a delight to his heart. We bring a smile to his face, just like our kids do when they're obedient. <laughs> but we're like that to him all the time. Yes, we can grieve him, but he loves being around us. And because we're his friends, he wants to let us know what he's doing. An example there, in the only example in the Old Testament, where someone is called the friend of God, um, it's Abraham. And in Genesis eighteen seventeen, it says, Shall I hide from Abraham this thing which I do? Asked the Lord. No, he answered. So God did tell Abraham, called the friend of God in James 2.23, that he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's an example of what this is about, that God calling Abraham a friend, or because Abraham was his friend, he's telling him what he is going to do. And so God will reveal things to us concerning our present-day situations and circumstances and people around us because we're his friends. Okay, It's not just, oh, I need to do this, I need to do that, and this is what I should be doing. No, God communicates to you. So abide in him and you will hear his voice. So I'm going to stop there. I hope to finish this, but we're not going to. So just remember that Abiding is being at home with. Where do you like spending your time? What kind of things do you like doing? Do you tend to spend a whole lot of time um, with your kids or a whole lot of time working or a whole lot of time doing this and that's what you like doing best? You've got to kind of ask yourself some deep questions here. What do you like doing best? If you had a choice, oh, I'll spend time with my wife or... I'll go diving or I'll go horse riding or whatever it might be. But it might even be learn a different language or Greek or something. But what it should be is whenever you get a, a moment of spare time, oh, I can spend some time with the Lord. I can spend some downtime with the Lord. I can pray. I can read the Word. I can go for a walk and pray. I can just sit and listen. And... We want to be at home with doing that. It shouldn't be strange for us to do that. It should be something that we want to do, that we're used to doing, that's become a part of our lives. That's what abiding means. So just remember that. Father, thank you that you called us your friends and Lord, help us to be at home with you because you're at home with us. You love being around us. You like us. Lord, help us to experience that deep abiding relationship so that we can experience your love and your joy in our hearts. The exhilaration of being in a right relationship with God. That confidence, that satisfaction, that security that nothing in this world can take away. And we just pray, Father, that you'll help us this week to meditate on these things and to Make sure that we spend time uh, reading your word, not just reading it though, but thinking about it, praying about it, asking you where we need to change, asking for understanding, 
And Lord, asking for the power to love. Because next week when we finish, it's about the Holy Spirit helping us. So help us to pray in the Spirit according to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.